again talking about uh, the Christian's response to man, man's laws, particularly when we disagree with them. We began first to consider what I called the first category, which I said are still overall wholesome laws, and yet we're not entirely convinced that they're the best, and yet in such a case, I said the Christian ought to obey uh, to avoid contempt and scandal. Um, and that, that is true, as we've seen across all spheres. It, it's kind of funny, when we talk about human authority, I feel like our, our mind tends to go immediately to civil government. Um, but it's true in all other ways, I would say, whether we're talking about the church, um, whether you're talking about the household, all, all kinds of things like that. Um, in those cases, we are still to obey. Last week, we considered the second kind of scenario that a Christian might find themselves in, and that is when a law or rule is no longer wholesome. doesn't mean it's necessarily commanding evil per se, um, but it's also to no purpose. It does not tend toward a good end. And in such a case, as I said, a Christian is not required to render obedience, and it is not necessarily contempt or scandal. A Christian may choose to obey such a law, even though it might infringe upon some of their liberties, they might choose to do so if it seems that doing so would best serve the Great Commission, but they are not required to do so in such cases. I think of Paul saying, to the uncircumcised, I became as one of the uncircumcised, right? There are certain cases in which we, we might give up our liberties for the spread of the gospel. To give an example of this, um, I gave last week the example of a father choosing a wake-up time for his teenage children. In fact, I, I heard the stories get back to me, and one mother said uh, that someone leaned over to them and said, in our house, we would make a rule, you can't get up before 10 a.m., and I was like, amen to that. Like, even this morning, Carlos is just like, up, and he's like, I want to play with my toys now, Poppy, and you're like, ah, uh, you know, that would be a great rule. I'd be in favor of that. Um, uh, but we had a good discussion about whether or not the children had to obey the father, even if it seemed that the father was being a bit strict in his rules. I asked, ought a teenager in our church to still obey their parents and wake up even at 7 a.m. on Saturdays, if that's what the father commands? And I concluded that I think most of us answered yes, um, though I still think the child can try to respectfully persuade their father otherwise. Um, I would still say I would be like, are you sure you're not being too harsh, right? I would still maybe question that. But at the end of the day, I do still think the father in such a circumstance is within his prerogative. The father should seek counsel, but even so, I would still say at that stage, the child should obey their father. Think about it from another perspective, though, in the second category. What if a father should say that their teenage children need to get up at 3 a.m.? And they don't live at a farm, they don't live on a farm, or some situation in which that might be normal. Um, does that tend, or is that necessary to deal with sluggardliness? Well, like, yeah, if you're, if you're training to be a Navy SEAL or something like that, right? Um, but in such a case, I, I think the father is going at that point out of his bounds to say, well, I don't want my children to be sluggards. You have to wake up at 3 a.m. I think we would all, I think all the men in the church would say, 
brother, what are you doing? <laughs> like, this is crazy. And in that case, honestly, if the child were to come to me, a teenager, and say, Pastor Ryan, I want to be obedient to my parents. I've tried it. I can't do it. It's so hard. Am I sinning if I sleep in more? I would say, you should respect and love your father, but I don't think you're sinning if you sleep in past 3 a.m., right? It doesn't tend towards, well, they could argue, well, it really tends because it's so early. Yes, but you can achieve the same end at even 7 or 8 or 9 o'clock. And so in that case, I would say the child doesn't have to render obedience. And we could give other examples, I think, with husbands and wives and things like that. So all that to say, although we, we, the mind tends to go to civil government, this is a really important doctrine in, in all spheres where there is authority. Again, the reason... Um, wait, hold on. Oh, sorry, I got this. All right. Today, we're going to talk about the third scenario that Christians may and historically have found themselves in, and that is when uh, the law is no longer generally wholesome, nor are they not even just not wholesome and not tending towards good, but when a law or ruling or action of what is normally from a lawful authority becomes tyranny. As I said, we want to be careful to not call tyranny tyranny too fast. Um, there, There might be cases in which a ruler is misguided or maybe they're strict, and we're like, you should really not do that. And we, someone could say, well, this is tyrannical. Like, it's kind of maybe heading in that direction, but let's save that for this third and final category. This is when the laws not only do not tend toward a good end, but now they are just simply for the seizing of power. They are for the taking of liberties, which God has given, not just religious liberties, but civil liberties as well, or other kinds of liberties, right? Um, God has given children the liberty to sleep. (laughs) Maybe you need to wake up early, but you do still get sleep, okay? God hasn't given that to fathers to totally take away by saying you have to wake up at 3 a.m., though we'll not call that quite yet tyranny, okay? Um, um, This is when we're dealing with not just a little bit, but, but it's a lot. You have a tyranny, and the question then becomes not... Does the Christian have to obey? It should be obvious that they don't have to obey by the simple fact that, as we saw in the second scenario, there are times when they do not have to obey. Of course, when it becomes a full-blown tyranny, you don't have to obey. Um, the question really becomes, um, is it lawful in the eyes of God for the Christian in such circumstances to resist tyranny, even to take up arms? In self-defense, is that lawful? And if so, in what way? What kind of restrictions are there? I suppose that there are various ways which people might respond. Again, there are pacifists who would argue that it's never lawful for a Christian in any circumstances to take up arms. Um, They argue that the principle of self-defense is not something that is an option for the Christian, as we discussed this when we talked about the Ten Commandments. Um, this, This view kind of to be careful, it, it kind of has a bit of a Marcionite view of the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament God and His law. Um, we've seen there are a lot of laws that don't transfer over, and yet the moral law is eternal, right? And so if certain things were moral there in terms of self-defense, um, you know, although the Lord might say certain things in terms of 
the Sermon on the Mount, the, those, it, he's not like giving a higher law, as we saw. Now, I won't give too long of a response to, to that argument of, of <clears throat> kind of what I would call pacifism, because I've dealt with that previously in our study of the Sixth Commandment, and I would encourage you, if you want to listen again to that sermon, I will just point to the fact that first, from the perspective of Scripture, it is lawful to kill in self-defense. It's not necessary. You don't have to kill someone, right? Um, but it is also lawful to kill. You see this in Exodus 22.2, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies... There shall be no guilt for him. That there, that there shall be no blood guilt for him. That's for the homeowner. If the thief dies, there's no blood guilt on the homeowner. There again, there's a possible threat to life. The key of that passage is that it's at nighttime. You don't know why this person is in your house. You don't know why they're there after you've locked the door. All you know is your wife are there, your children are there, and basically everything you own is there. They might be trying to harm you, and in such a case, you can defend your life, the life of your wife, the life of your children. That's totally lawful, and if that person dies, that's on them. It's different in the daytime, we saw, but nevertheless, the principle of self-defense is biblical. We might say, well, if that is true of individuals, in a certain case in a household, or the life of a family, would it not also be true, saving a nation's worth of families and individuals from a tyrant as well, or someone who might try to do them harm? Is self-defense not a principle that applies more, blood, uh, more broadly as well? <clears throat> Furthermore, perhaps some Christians might still agree with us to some degree, maybe that self-defense is okay, um, or might not agree with us, but just make a blanket appeal to Romans 13. We'll see that historically that's been very common, a common answer for, for not resisting or taking up arms. And in fact, Paul there says, whoever resists, right? And he's talking about resisting. So how can you say it's okay to resist tyranny? We'll deal with that later on, but I would ask them if a, if a, a, was, a, a husband's husband, if a woman's husband is beating her, can she defend herself? Imagine they would say yes. If a father was wailing on a child with some kind of metal object, can they defend themselves? I'm sure they would all say, yeah, absolutely, right? Well, why cannot the citizens of a nation defend themselves also from a tyrant when that too, well, when the civil government is a lawful authority? A husband is a lawful authority over a wife. A wife can still defend herself if he's beating her. A father is a lawful authority over a child. A child can defend himself if the father is beating him, right? So just because civil government is a lawful authority doesn't mean you could never defend yourself. And if you do, I think it puts you in a funny situation in those other spheres. I imagine they might say, um, yes, um, they might say, yes, but God has nowhere given husbands authority to beat their wives, right? But has God given civil government authority to be tyrannically ruling over its citizens? No. So you're, you're dealing with something that is not really what Paul is talking about in Romans 13. And so not only do I see solid grounds within Scripture itself for rejecting the idea that we could never oppose tyranny, I think just the, the basic 
basic reason and, and common sense kind of leads to that conclusion. Furthermore, I can also defend my answer with support from many brilliant and godly theologians over history. Sometimes you might hear it said that the idea that Christians can rebel against civil government, well, maybe that only really came about with the Enlightenment, right? Now, the Enlightenment was a serious factor, whether you're talking about the American Revolution or the French Revolution, we won't deny that. But neither can it be sustained that no one questioned the, the resisting of tyranny before the Enlightenment. That's not true at all. For starters, it was definitely a Protestant idea, at least. Let me read a few quotes to you. Ulrich Zwingli, the Swiss reformer, when kings reign perfidiously, so like in a not good way, perfidiously, and against the rule of Christ, they may, according to the word of God, be deposed. You may depose them. Or elsewhere, he says, but when by suffrage, and the suffrage is voting, voting and consent of the whole people, or the better part of them, a tyrant is deposed or put to death, God is the chief leader in that action. He's not opposed to that at all, even killing a tyrant. Martin Bootser, the reformer of Strasbourg, the, the guy who really discipled Calvin in a lot of ways, so much of what Calvin taught and stuff, a lot of that he was, he was discipled by Martin Bootser. If a sovereign prince endeavor by arms to defend transgressors, to subvert those things which are taught in the word of God, they who are in authority under him ought first to dissuade him. If they prevail not, and that he now bears himself not as a prince but as an enemy and seeks to violate privileges and rights granted to inferior magistrates and commonalities, it is the part of pious magistrates imploring first the, the assistance of God rather to try all ways and means than to betray the flock of Christ to such an enemy, for they are also to this end ordained that they may defend the people of God and maintain those things which are good and just. That right there is what's called the doctrine of lesser magistrates. Just because you are a lesser magistrate, you're not a king, um, doesn't mean you cannot uh, even at times stand up to a greater magistrate um, if they turn into a tyrant. Furthermore, it cannot even be argued that this was a purely Protestant position. In fact, this, this theory goes back well into the Middle Ages, and you can find significant figures um, in the medieval period arguing that it is lawful at a minimum to resist and overthrow a tyrant, a tyrant and at a maximum to even kill a tyrant. I thought that was interesting because I, you're like, well, that's the time of kings and chivalry and princes and surely the divine right of kings and things like that. Um, no, a lot of significant thinkers were okay with overthrowing a tyrant. They, they didn't throw that idea out. For example, in the 12th century, the 1100s, there's an English churchman named John of Salisbury. He wrote a very important medieval work on political thought and philosophy titled Polycraticus. Uh, some have said it's the first full medieval work of political theory, like others had dealt with it, but it was like the first full one that did that, and it had a very big influence. From the little bit of the book that I have read, I found it very, very good in a lot of ways. He talks about various kinds of tyranny. According to him, there are three kinds of tyrants. First, there are private tyrants. That would be like a boss who's a tyrant, a husband 
who's a tyrant, right? Next, there are ecclesiastical tyrants. There are those. There's no shortage of those to be found in the world. And then lastly, he speaks about not private but public tyrants, public figures, princes or magistrates who have turned to tyranny. Of public tyrants, he says, there is mainly this difference between the tyrant and the prince. The latter, the prince, is obedient to law. It's obedient to law. He argues that even though there are kings and monarchs, yet even these are still subject to law. And when he mentions law, it's not just necessarily the broader laws of the state, but ultimately the, the moral law of God. Like, it's, that's, that's the ultimate law. He says, princes should not sus- uh, suppose that they are disparaged by the belief that the justice of God, whose justice is eternal justice and whose law is equity, is preferable to the justice of their own statutes. So yeah, you can make just statutes, but don't forget God's law is ultimately law with a capital L. He even argues that in the case of those rulers or tyrants uh, who are themselves no longer subject to law, that it is not only permitted to slay them, but that that is even just. He says, furthermore, it is not only permitted, but it is also equitable and just to slay tyrants. For he who receives the sword deserves to perish by the sword. In, in other words, he's not saying, um, or Christ says, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Um, I think when Christ talks about that, he's talking about something, I think he's talking about either people who, who live sinfully by the sword, uh, or maybe who trust in the sword uh, rather than God. Um, receiving the sword there means they have received the sword from God in lawful authority right? Romans 13, they do not bear the sword in vain. What he's saying is, it makes sense that those who bear the sword are themselves also underneath the obligations of the sword and may fall under the sword as well. He says, he who receives punishment, he who, oh, I'm sorry, he who receives power from God serves the laws and is the slave of justice and right. He who usurps power suppresses justice and places the laws beneath his will. Therefore, justice is deservedly armed against those who disarm the laws, and the public power treats harshly those who endeavor to put aside the public hand. This is a very helpful distinction we'll see later, especially with the Puritans, that there's a distinction between the office that the person holds and the person themselves. This person in their office ought to do justice, but their person, the way that they are acting, is actually contrary to their office, which serves the law. And in such a case, it's it's almost as though the office that they stand in itself is defending itself against such a person, right? Well, that was um, a very serious book. Uh, It was published tons of times in, in the 12th century very influential. It was even published, I think, in the 1600s. So it, it received a wide authorship, and it was very well received. Next, about 100 years later or so, in the 13th century, you have Aquinas, one of the biggest thinkers, not, not only a theologian, but philosopher, and he wrote on all kinds of things. He writes something similar in his work, De Regno, on kingship. He says, if to provide itself with a king belongs to the right of a given multitude. 
It is not unjust that the king be deposed or have his power restricted by the same multitude if, becoming a tyrant, he abuses the royal power. It must not be thought that such a multitude is acting unfaithfully in deposing the tyrant, even though it had previously subjected itself to him in perpetuity, because he himself has deserved that the covenant with his subjects should not be kept, since in ruling the multitude he did not act faithfully as the office of a king demands. There you have, you know, here again, sometimes people will say, they'll, they'll speak of the social contract theory, um, that there is this contract between rulers and the ruled, right? In many ways, well, contract is just another word for covenant, and covenants, when kings were established, they made a covenant with that king. And so it's not just like, oh, well, you are now the king. You are in a covenant with people. You have duties, and you can break that covenant as well. And that's really what Aquinas is talking there about. Now, Aquinas differs from John of Salisbury in that he does not think we should kill a tyrannical king, an issue that we will see will come up again with the Puritans. Uh, they are faced uh, with a difficult choice. At first, they're not leaning towards killing, and then they kind of like, see, it doesn't practically work all that great, uh, just to keep a tyrant lying around. Um, but he does argue that not only uh, can a monarch's power be limited, but the monarch themselves can even be deposed. So all this to say, this idea of resisting tyranny, it's not just some wild-eyed Protestant thing. Um, it's not just from these hot-headed Puritans. Uh, if someone ever says that, just quote Thomas Aquinas to him and just watch him squirm or something. Um, it goes back, and it really goes back even longer in, in Western history, um, even just to philosophy. Uh, you can read Cicero. Um, Cicero is known, it, I, I think this is historically accurate, for killing Caesar, right? Um, so there's a long history in the West of resisting tyrants. Um, interestingly, Augustine is probably the most, he's not a pacifist. Um, I've read some people say he makes room for resisting tyranny. Like, he doesn't outright say, like, you can never resist or anything like that. But he seems most comfortable with the idea of martyrship and even, like, political martyr martyrship, not just in matters of the state. Um, he, he says that in such a case, that will shame the monarch into changing his rules. I thought that was interesting. I, I thought Augustine would be a little bit more hardcore than that. He tells an interesting story about a Roman legion in Egypt. They were stationed in the city of Thebes in Egypt. They were called the Theban Legion. You can look it up, Theban, T-H-E-B-A-N, Legion. They were Christians, and they would not offer sacrifice to the emperor, and so they were decimated. Now, for us, decimated means to be destroyed. In ancient Roman military times, Decimation was an actual punishment in which you killed every tenth man of a certain uh, unit. Decem, decem means ten. So you were tensed. You got tithed, but it, it wasn't a good kind of tithe. One tenth of the people were put to death. They were decimated twice, and then finally in the end they were just killed. They were wiped out, okay? Now Augustine points to this to say, uh, and he's highlighting specifically the fact that these were a legion. These men bore the sword, and yet they chose not to do it. Um, 
I, I don't think that makes Augustine a pacifist. I think it, it means he comes out of a time of Christian martyrs, when Christians were really martyred, and that's not a weak thing either. We shouldn't look at that. If anything, that's really hardcore to be martyred for your faith, and, and um, I, I would say there are times when it, it may be better for the spread of the gospel to be martyred. I remember talking to a man, I was interested in missions in my undergrad, and talking to this guy who ran, um, not, he didn't run it, but he was like on the board or something for some kind of big missions organization. They weren't the SBC, though, and I said, and at the time, um, all these Christian missionaries, the SBC was pulling them out of Iraq or Afghanistan, or one of them, and they were just pulling them out, and all the SBC missionaries were leaving, and I said, somehow we got in the subject, and I said, well, would you pull them out? And he said, no, we don't do that. He said, I would counsel them, brother, it may be God's will for you to live and fight another day, it may be God's will for you to die with your congregation. Um, but you need to seek the Lord on that. And the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? And there are times when even a Christian might be able to uh, resist and choose not to do so for the sake of the gospel, right? Or, or in their conscience or something like that. But again, resistance to tyranny is something that Christians have ag- not, not have universally agreed on, but it's not just this wild-eyed, crazy idea, and it does have big thinkers behind it, okay? However, if you really want to study this issue in depth uh, and go tit-for-tat over every scripture you could think of, if you want to see the fullest arguments developed for it, you really want to look at the English Puritans and the Scottish Presbyterians of the early 1600s. They probably wrote the most thoroughgoing defenses of uh, resistance to tyranny, and it was precisely because they were in the midst of such a struggle with the monarch in the English civil wars. The English civil wars were a series of conflicts with King Charles I. He was king of both England and Scotland. The kingdoms were not united then. That happened later. They were two separate kingdoms, um, but he had been king over both um, because of his parents. One was, you you understand what I'm trying to say. Um, Now, there were a whole host of issues involved in the English civil wars, and it's plural, because it's kind of one big long conflict, but there are separate wars or, or episodes, if you will. There were a whole host of issues involved on the religious front. The Protestants in England, especially the Puritans, had for decades decades been lobbying for more reforms in the Church of England and often not really seeing any change. And yet, with King Charles taking the throne, it seemed that they were actually going to be moving backwards rather than forward. Whereas King James, the father of King Charles, the famous King James of the King James Bible, had been a staunch Calvinist. In fact, he was a very staunch uh, patron of the Synod of Dort, um, where you get the, the, the canons of Dort, the five points. Um, his son Charles, on the other hand, was an Arminian, at least favorable to Arminians. He famously made uh, William Laud the Archbishop of Canterbury. You might not know who William Laud is, um, but if you are a Puritan, it's like the name Mufasa to Scar. It's like, boo, you know, William Laud. He was a very evil man, 
um, there were several Puritans who he had arrested and he lopped their ears off for publishing certain things. Like, that's an evil man. There's no <laughs> justification, just their ears, right? It's just a, it's just a, that's just a power thing, right? William Laud was an Arminian and he openly despised the Puritans. Charles had appointed this guy. Furthermore, Charles was married to a French Roman Catholic. This stroked, stoked fears that the Church of England A very foolish, arrogant, and pig-headed man. It's kind of like all historians just kind of were like, ugh. I remember Dr. Godfrey, he said something once. He was like, he was like taking a jab at the Stuarts because he's Charles Stuart. And he said, well, he said one of the smarter things ever said by a Stuart king. And so I think just historically the Stuarts were like, ugh. It's not really, it's not really great. Um, Charles was known for being kind of foolish in that way. He was a strong advocate of what is referred to as the divine right of kings. Not only that kings were instituted by God, but that they were ultimately answerable only to God. That it was not lawful for the people to resist even a tyrannical king. Charles got many of these ideas from his father, the famous King James of the King James Bible. James was also the king of Scotland and England, and he was a fervent advocate of the divine right of kings. He wrote a whole bunch of treatises about them. Isn't that funny? He's like, I'm the king. God put me here. You really shouldn't question me at all. Publish that. Great. Um, and then he like multiple times. It's like, okay. But he wrote a book, for example, in 1598 called The True Law of Free Monarchies, in which he sets out the duties of a king towards his people and the people toward the king. He's not arguing for, he's not advocating evil kings. He think, thinks kings should be wise and just and all that. At the end of the day, the end of the day, he still thinks the king is only answerable to God. He writes, kings are called gods by the prophet King David, referring to 80, uh, Psalm 82, 6, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. He takes that to refer to kings. Kings are called gods. I'm just going to tell you, if there's a treatise arguing for the power of monarchs and it just comes out the gate with that, you're just like, oh. All right. Anyway, kings are called gods by the prophet King David because they sit upon God's throne on the earth 
and must give account of their administration to him. Now, it doesn't say only to him, but that's the implication. They are only answerable to God. Speaking of the establishment of the monarchy in Israel, he says, Now then, since the erection of this monarchy among the Jews and the law thereof may and ought to be a pattern to all Christian and well-founded monarchies, being founded by God himself, then what liberty can broiling spirits and rebellious minds claim justly against any Christian monarch? You are fighting God, right? And you're just broiling spirits. You're just, you're just rebellious. He admits that there were and are tyrants, but still, conveniently, they are not to be resisted. He says, there never was a more monstrous persecutor and tyrant than King Ahab was. Yet all the rebellion that Elijah ever raised against him was to flee to the wilderness. So you can flee a tyrant, but you cannot resist a tyrant. Well, that was King James, the father of King Charles. And so you can see the kind of thinking that he was raised in and, and which was inculcated into him specifically. In fact, there was a book by King James written specifically to his son on how to govern. So this is like he really got this from his father. It would not be a stretch to say that this stringent view of the divine right of kings, this unwillingness to bend in terms of personality, not only led to the civil wars, but eventually led to Charles' own execution. In fact, there were many times when the parliament would have sought a settlement with the king. He was not willing to compromise. You can see his utter defiance, even in his trial before his execution. The court record, uh, records tell us that while he was on trial, he said famously, I would know by what authority, and I mean lawful authority, I am to be tried. There are many unlawful authorities in the world, such as thieves and robbers on the highway, which have the same authority as this assembly. Do not forget that I am your sovereign king, ordained by God to rule his people. So he's still holding to the divine right of kings. Um, he also historically actually had like a cane, and he was hitting this guy who was reading it, and it, then the, the top, this middle part, fell to the ground, and no one picked it up. And historians say, or at least people who were there say, it, it seemed to be the moment when he realized, I'm on trial here, and I'm, I'm not a king, I'm just a man. Because no one offered to pick it up for him anymore, and he had just been kind of this, this turkey, right? Leading up to the wars, Charles was always frustrated with Parliament. He was frustrated that there were limitations on his rule. He was ultimately frustrated that he, he, wouldn't, he couldn't do just what he wanted to do. Um, I saw this little short video the other day where his dad was like, no, 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 do, don't do that. And the little girl goes, um, don't tell me what to do. And you're like, ah, you just, you just don't want to be told what to do. And it seems like that. It's not that he was necessarily trying to do evil things, but he just didn't like the idea of limitations, that he had to ask Parliament for certain things, that he had to make compromise. Unfortunately for Charles, England had a long history and tradition of monarchy, but a monarch with limitations on their power. For example, the king could not levy taxes without Parliament. Not only was this a legal statute in England, but it was also just a very practical issue. The king relied on his nobles to collect the taxes from the people. But if the, if the nobles just thought it was unjust, 
They'd be like, oh, yeah, I just, I wasn't able to collect it today. Sorry, your majesty, I'll try again tomorrow. And just, it wouldn't happen. So there was very much, although he's king, there is a lot of cooperation that happens. And that was tradition in England, and it was seen as a good thing. Well, Charles' answer to this was to try to just rule without parliament. He, he did it for about 11 years. The king could call a parliament at that time, um, and, and they could also not call one. They typically did when they needed certain things. But he's just like, I'm just not going to do it for 11 years. He tried to raise money for his government uh, and his endeavors via other ways, which were not considered entirely within the limits of his power. They were not sanctioned by parliament. However, unfortunately for Charles, a war broke out, I think it was with Ireland, or maybe with Scotland, one of those, and he had to raise funds to, to put down the rebellion, so he finally called a parliament. Oh, parliament. It's like going to the dentist. Well, this parliament, since it hadn't been called in so long, it flexed its strength. It passed new measures that parliaments had to be called every three years. They had to be by the king. And that the king could not dissolve parliaments unless their grievances, grievances had been met. What happens then is basically kind of both sides begin doubling down. The king is irritated and just continues ahead, like, who are these people? I'm their king, ordained by God. And Parliament's getting really anxious as this guy is just taking more power and just not wanting to compromise and just doing more and more things like that. There were two big things that were really the spark of the Civil War. First, the king tried to seize and imprison five acting members of Parliament. Historically, they're just referred to as the five members, but they were active members of Parliament, um, and they knew it was coming. They were tipped off, and it failed, and it led to an uproar in the city of London, which you might well imagine. The king then fled, fearing his own life and the, wife of, or the life of his, his Catholic wife. Um, then famously, he went to a city called Hull, H-U-L-L. -L. It's in the north of England. Hull was a powerful military installation, and although fighting had not yet broken out, the king wanted just to be sure that he was well supplied should fighting break out. And so he went to Hull and told the commander to open the gates, and the commander said, no, why are you gathering arms against us? Like, what, what other purpose can you have to be, in it's many ways, in, like the march on Lexington and Concord, why are you taking our powder away from us if not to use it against us, Right? Well, eventually, actual fighting broke out. In this conflict, on the one side, you had the royalists, some kind, sometimes called the cavaliers, right? Um, not the, the Cleveland cavaliers, nothing to do with them. Then you had largely the Puritans on the other side. They were called the roundheads because they didn't have super long hair like those, those hippie European cavaliers, um, now, maybe not, it wasn't like down to here, um, but it was generally, you're a roundhead, right? Those were Puritans, it was a slur. There were a lot of Puritan treatises arguing for the lawfulness of defensive arms. In fact, interestingly, there was a bishop, an Anglican named Henry Fern, and I only know about him because he wrote a book arguing that large-scale resistance was not lawful, and the Puritans all pounced on him in print and took his arguments to task. It's interesting, though, 
I thought I would find more people arguing like James and Charles for the divine right of kings. I thought there would be more people maybe arguing along the lines of Charles himself. You don't really see that, um, which is, again, is not surprising, but it shows us how complicated this conflict was. There were many people who supported the king. They were royalists, but even they didn't think that he should have unlimited power, right? So even this one treatise supposedly arguing against the taking up of arms, um, it's not arguing for, for divine right. It even argues that there are times when you might do so um, but, and you may, ha- you may defend yourself, but not on a large scale. Um, and so the Puritans all pounced on this. They really did. Uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, William Bridge, uh, Samuel Rutherford, they all, they all just go at Mr. Fern. Jeremiah Burroughs responds and says that a king, see- I'm sorry, that a kingdom seeing itself in imminent danger of enemies to infringe the liberties of it may stand up to defend itself, yea, although they come forth against it in the name of the king. This is our, our case, our situation. And if the doctor disputes against anything but this, he fights his own shadow. So what Fern argues is like, well, yes, you can fight and resist against tyrants, but the king is not a tyrant right now. He hasn't declared himself to be so. He says he's doing things in the best interest of the country. Um, And Burroughs is like, yeah, but if we can see, like, you can see danger coming. He's gathering up powder. He's gathering up arms. He's raising troops. um, He's imprisoning members of parliament. You can see something coming. You can defend yourself if you see something coming. Furthermore, Fern argued that individuals could defend themselves against a tyrant but that there could be no organized, large-scale resistance. He argues, um, as we've seen in other places, from Romans 13, verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Fur takes that, particularly the term resist, and, and, and says that's organized resistance. Right? It's very convenient for him. Burroughs says, the strength almost of the whole book, uh, not like the strength of it, but where he puts his strength, is in that place of Romans 13, and in this place I believe the doctor will see, or if he doth not, others will, that he is utterly mistaken in the sense of that place, right? Then he gives this reply, and it's, it's very good. He says, if one that is in authority command out of his own will and not by law, I resist no power and no authority at all. In other words, yeah, Paul says we should not resist power and authority given by God, but when they're not acting within the bounds of that power and authority, you're not resisting the the authority of God by resisting them in their unlawful attempts. He makes, again, the helpful distinction between the actual power and position given by God, which we are not to resist, and the men who wield that power. He says, we distinguish between the man that hath the power and the power of that man. And say, although the power must not be resisted according to the letter and the sense of the text, yet the illegal will and ways of the man may be resisted without the least offending against the text. Now, if you want more arguments uh, from Scripture, um, I can point you to some of those writings. They get very detailed 
they, they, like I said, it's very common for that, books of that period, the, it's very like, ting, 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 they're kind of going back and forth. You can read that. There are some interesting passages I had never thought about, um, but, but I'll, I'll leave that to you. The interesting thing is that at first in the civil wars, it seems parliament was more of the mind they could resist the tyrannical king, but no one had the idea or desire um, to either fully depose him, and no one was thinking about killing him. If you would have asked uh, many of the parliamentary, uh, parliamentarians why they were resisting, they would have told you, we're not so much resisting the king, but his wicked advisors. We're on the king's side, but he's been taken in by these wicked advisors. The problem came, reality came knocking at the door when they defeated the king. He surrendered himself He never really changed his mind, and all of his advisors are gone, and it becomes very clear, uh, the king is still really the problem. Kind of didn't know what to do with him for a long time. They had thought of certain plans, which I think were actually quite generous. It was kind of like a road to restoration for a monarch. Um, You will, maybe in, in a certain number of years, have these powers restored, and eventually go back to full monarchy. Like, it was very generous. But Charles was just super pig-headed, wanted nothing of it. They thought we could banish him to the continent, but he has family there, and he'll just come back with another army, so we have to keep him here. However, the king made them come up with a choice when he escaped, raised a new army, and the war started all over again. And therefore, Oliver Cromwell called him that man of blood. Whatever he was before, his existence just means tyranny and bloodshed to this nation, and so they executed King Charles I. And just so you know, the army of parliament was largely, not exclusively, but largely made up of congregationalists, among whom were many, many Baptists. There were some signers of the the first London Baptist Confession who fought in the civil wars. It's kind of funny that Parliament was largely controlled by Presbyterians. Um, the army was totally a thing of the Congregationalists, and, and there were actually a lot of tensions where even later down the road, Parliament kind of tried to sell out the army because the Congregationalists wanted a broader religious settlement. They wanted for Baptists to be okay to be Baptists and not be thrown into prison. The Presbyterians wanted a hardcore Presbyterian government across the board, so it led to further further conflict. But just all that to say, it's in your theological blood, so to say, as Baptists, to to resist tyrannies at times. Um, Sometimes I'll hear American Presbyterians say, well, the Presbyterians just really fought in the American Revolution, and they're just all about liberty. I'm like, well, you guys kind of punked out in the English Civil Wars, so... um, Anyway, anyway. Well, as Dr. Sproul used to say in the final analysis, whether we resist or do not resist, the ultimate determiner should be what will most redound to the glory of God and the spread of the gospel. We should be very much in prayer. War is a bell you cannot unring, and once you've rung it, it is rung and you are committed to your cause. Be careful you do not do it in vain or unwisely. And be sure that you are not seeking other vain motivations. Be sure that it is truly 
for the spread of the gospel. There might be a case in which the gospel and the kingdom is more aided and it spreads more by resisting a tyranny. There might be a case in which the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church and the church grows that way. Both have historically worked and neither is weak. Christians in China are not weak. In fact, they've spread all over the place because of their martyrdom. And that is, that is um, the ultimate determiner. Any questions?